Hi, I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Please sign up for my newsletter at zibbyowens.com for weekly updates about my podcasts, events, and more. Also, follow me on Instagram at zibbyowens and also at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. And finally, join my virtual book club called Zibby's Virtual Book Club, which meets every other Tuesday at 2 p.m. Eastern Time until 3 p.m. and features half an hour of book club discussion, followed by 30 minutes of Q&A with the author whose book we've just discussed. You can sign up on my website, zibbyowens.com, under the virtual book club section, or even on Instagram under the link in my bio. I hope you'll find me in all these different channels and enjoy this podcast. Today's episode has been sponsored by Sugarwish. Sugarwish is an online gifting site that provides a delightful gift experience followed by delicious treats. They get to choose delivered directly to their door. Here's how it works. A sugar wish can be sent to anybody. So if you're the recipient, you open up an email and it says, someone has sent you a sugar wish and you open it up, you click and it says, pick any four of these delicious candies um, to fill your basket. So you get to look through everything from gummy worms and M&Ms and Skittles and jelly beans and everything. Um, and you click and then check out and it's sent to you in this beautiful box with all these candies inside and a ribbon. And it's just beautifully packaged and sent right to your door. And so somebody, basically, you get to customize your own gift. And it's really awesome. And I did this. And I sent some to my son at boarding school. And we got some here for Halloween. And I highly, highly recommend uh, this company. Um, definitely go check it out, sugarwish.com. Helison Wood is the author of Being Lolita. Her writings have been published in the New York Times, the Paris Review, the Rumpus, Catapult, and No Tokens. She teaches creative writing at her New York University and at Second Street Writers Workshop. She is the founder and editor-in-chief of Pigeon Pages, a New York City literary journal and reading series. Allison was a winner of the inaugural Breakout 8 Award from Epiphany Magazine and Authors Guild. Welcome, Allison. Thanks for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. Thank you. I'm just sorry this took us so long, especially as soon as I started reading your book. And I was like, what has the holdup been? I'm so sorry. So anyway, delighted to be talking to you. Yeah. <laughs> so being Lolita, can you please tell listeners what this is about? So at its core, this is a book very much about power and sex and gender, but in a much more simple plot way, it's about how when I was 17 and I became ensnared in this incredibly abusive relationship with an English teacher in my high school. And he gave me the book Lolita and he told me it was a beautiful story about love. And I was 17 and I didn't know any better. And the book goes over, sort of follows the story of how I was groomed and how things escalated very quickly and became very abusive and how I was able to leave the relationship and then what my life has been like since and how this has, this experience has impacted me both for good and bad. So how would you say the experience has impacted you? Well, I think that on the not so good hand, you know, trauma never goes away. This experience was incredibly bad and it was very traumatic. And in a lot of ways, it set me up for a lot of bad relationships. There's all this research about how this is why it's so important to talk to teenagers about healthy relationships and consent and boundaries and red flags of abuse. There's all this research that shows that your first relationship is 
very much creates this mold for future relationships. And my first relationship was a secret and it was incredibly abusive and it was full of manipulation and lying. And so that was what I thought love was. And, you know, that was, that was tough to figure out that, ah, that's not love. And I'm, I'm 36 now. So I spent a lot of time in therapy and just sort of figuring things out and making a lot of mistakes. So, you know, but (laughs) there is the other side, you can get through it. So on the good side, though, I think that because of what happened to me, I am incredibly, incredibly aware and supportive of my students. I teach now at NYU. I, I teach undergraduate students and I'm so aware and careful. And I just, I want to be a teacher that I wish that I had had as opposed to the teacher I had. You know, it's so funny. I feel like so many of the authors I interview mention the influence of one teacher along the way as like setting them on their path to becoming a published author. It's like someone has to notice your gift or your potential or whatever, and that can just change everything. So the power that you have as a teacher on all these aspiring authors, right? You teach creative writing, right? Yeah. So I would think almost like a daunting responsibility in a way. (laughs) It is. And another, a funny thing is that I got angry about what happened to me in a brand new way once I started teaching. Because, Mm. you know, undergraduates, they're 18, 19. I, I teach an intro class, so it's a lot of, you know, freshmen. And as I'm sure any parent knows, they're still kids. You know, they've never rented an apartment on their own. They've probably never paid a bill. They probably never worked full time. They might not even know how to cook. I mean, in so many ways, they're still kids. And so when we send them off to college, it's this wonderful opportunity for a safety net for them to, you know, figure out how to be an adult. You know, there's a dorm, so they'll never be homeless. There's a dining hall, so they'll never go hungry. You know, there's all these safety nets in place, which is wonderful. But when I began teaching, the first time I went into a classroom with my own students, I was just struck by how young they are. And for someone to go into a classroom thinking anything except how can I support and encourage and, you know, keep these students safe, for someone to go into a classroom and be thinking about their own sexual or emotional or ego gratification is just monstrous. And it just, it made me angry about what happened to me in a whole new way, because I think teaching is sacred. I think young people are, should be nothing but supported and to do anything else is just horrible. (laughs) So So what do you, what do you think your teacher originally thought? Like when he went into teaching, do you think that this just happened or do you know what I mean? Like, do you think he went in with lofty goals? I know he was so young at the time as well. He was 26 or he was somewhere between 26 and 28. I don't remember, but you know, there's sort of two options for how that went on one side. He really did misread Lolita (laughs) (laughs) intensely. And he really did think this was this utterly romantic story. And he really did think that he and I were in love. And like, this was this, you know, thing that was fine. And that means he was kind of stupid, to be frank. Like, I'm sorry, really? Like, I was a, I was 17. Like, I was a high school student. How on earth could you do the backflips in your head to make that seem fine? But the, the other option is that he was a predator from the start and he knew exactly what he was doing. And he was doing it on purpose. 
And that's also incredibly, incredibly difficult because I want to believe that people are good and that, you know, people aren't evil (laughs) or anything, but, you know, I don't know. And I, and I never will, but I want, well, either he was stupid or he's a terrible person and probably a little bit of both. These are the, these are the choices today. (laughs) Not so great. No, not so great. Not so great. And if, and the, I think one of the toughest things, and this is something that I've had to face and sort of acknowledge over time is that if, and this is sort of what I lean to, I think he was predatory from the get-go. I think he knew what he was doing. I think there was some, I just don't understand how you can go into a high school and not think, huh, maybe I should not try to fuck my students Um, and how you can make that seem okay. But that then means that I was a victim, like clean cut a victim. Because I think something that's interesting about victim blaming, because even especially when you do it yourself, like, which I did, of course, for a long time, I was like, well, I flirted with him. I, you know, wanted this. I thought he was so cute. But, you know, to start with, that's completely developmentally appropriate. It's completely okay for a teenager to have a crush on their teacher. Like, no big deal. Like, you know, that's fine. It's part of what's going on when you're a teenager. You know, hormones are flying and it's so exciting. And then there's this teacher who maybe pays attention to you and, you know, that's totally fine. What's wrong is when the adult, the teacher, crosses that line. That's morally and ethically and at times legally wrong. But my experience was normal and completely okay. But the victim blaming part came in when, you know, I wanted to believe that I had some level of control over what had happened. So I blamed myself which is then blaming my choices, my actions. But in actuality, I don't think, I think I was just a victim and I don't think there was really any blame on my part. And that's also really hard to face because that's really sad. And, you know, you want to believe that you're a powerful, strong person who has some control and it's, it's tough to face that that's not always the truth. So, you know, it's been a process. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone's got their stuff. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Do yeah. you think you became a teacher in a way to kind of like right the wrongs of, the, of what happened? The funny thing is it was in no way conscious. I just, I've always wanted to teach. I've always loved that. I've always loved writing. So it felt just sort of very natural and organic. But then, of course, as I'm writing the book, I'm like, huh, <laughs> huh. Interesting. I end up a teacher. You know, it's one of those things where it's like, uh, I I mean, I don't, I don't know if it's quite that simple, but clearly part of what I do is to try and right the wrong that happened to me and, and be the kind of teacher that I wish that I had had, you know, that's really important to me. Yeah. I mean, it's almost like a way of making amends in a way. I don't know. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Reparations. But I'm not going to be making the reparations. No, I know you're not. I know. I didn't say it like made sense. I'm just saying like from one of those weird subconscious things that we all do. But of course, isn't that that such the work of women to do this kind of work for others? And to, I mean, that's just, that's such a woman thing that we are trained to do. We're trained to care and, you know, fix things and that's a whole other conversation. Yes. (laughs) 
Let's save that for a cup of coffee or something. <laughs> Maybe a glass of wine. <laughs> a glass of wine. That'd be great. <laughs> you know, I was also, I was so interested in how you sort of came into this book and how you came into the, not the book itself, but how you as a character came into the relationship of the book and your backstory and how you started it feeling like such an, so other than other people in your school and that you had gone through a lot yourself. And there were all these rumors about your hospitalization and had she tried to kill herself and had she been doing this with other guys and like all that swirling around you and your previous sort of diagnoses and also the whole insomnia part, which I thought was really fascinating because like you got in so much trouble for that all the time missing classes and everything. And even though it was documented, it put you on like a totally different trajectory from an academic standpoint. Yeah. So tell me a little more about all of that. Well, I think like so many teenagers, I struggled when I was a teenager. I mean, starting probably when I was 14 or 15, I began having really serious depression. And, you know, there was no specific reason. It just happened. Like it does oftentimes with teenagers, you know, like when you sort of start hormones and puberty, that can often be a time when um, depressive episodes or any sort of mental illness will sort of kick in. And I just became incredibly depressed. And at one point I was cutting myself and, you know, I never tried to kill myself, but I was, I was in a very dark place for a very long time. And like you mentioned, you know, I became an insomniac. I switched my nights and days for a while. I mean, I was I was not a happy, stable camper. I was very, very depressed for a long time. And so I stopped going to school. Because um, <laughs> if you're up all night and you're sleeping during the day, you're not making a class. So it was at the point that my depression was so serious that it was at the point where I had ECT. I had electroconvulsive therapy when I was in high school to try and, you know, snap me out of it because, and, you know, ECT is incredibly safe. We have this real stigma about it in our culture because of the way that it's portrayed in movies and in TV, but it's actually really safe. It's only a couple seconds. You're under anesthesia. You're not awake. They give you muscle relaxers. You know, there's no like shaking and it's an incredibly effective treatment for depression. And so this is very much an aside in my book, but it is something that I think is important that I wish we didn't stigmatize treatments for depression. I think we've gotten better about talking about mental illness and medication. I think we're better at that. But I think ECT is still something that's sort of like, oh, you know, that's only if you're psychotic or, you know, something. It's really dangerous. And it, it's really not. It's actually one of the safest treatments for pregnant women because hmm. anesthesia doesn't pass through the placenta. So there's no danger to the baby as there are in many medication. I'm sorry, this is a side. <laughs> no, I find it really interesting. I'm like, gosh, I could have used a little ECT when it I was pregnant, life. you know. <laughs> I mean, it it saved my life. I really I really believe that. And it is it's this sort of like dark corner of mental health that people don't talk about because there's this horrible stigma. And you know, when this was happening, so this was like the late 90s, early 2000s, there was a lot, this was 20, almost 20 years ago, or more than 20 years ago, there was a lot of stigma about mental illness at that point still. You know, it's interesting thinking about that, because part of the reason that medication has come so far and like being sort of normalized is because (laughs) medical companies were able to, prescription companies were able to start advertising their drugs. So like, I remember the first time I saw like the ad for Prozac in a magazine, you know, it was like the stormy and in the sun and Prozac, it'll fix it. 
you know, so that's part of why there's, there's been all this money and advertising to make medication seem okay. And thus to, you know, make people buy it. Whereas there, there's no big ECT, (laughs) there's no big, you know, there's big pharma, there's no big ECT, it's machines, it's, you know, there's there's no money to be made. So there's not this, you know, public service sort of trying to break down the stigma. But anyway, so yeah, when I came back to school, I had gone to a therapeutic day school my junior year, which was, you know, also that was a normal school, smaller population. Like the only real difference was that we had group therapy in the afternoons (laughs) where it's just, you know, teenagers in a circle talking about what's bugging them. (laughs) But I came back my senior year and people thought I had died. People were like, oh, she ended up a hospital because she tried to kill herself. Like, she's this slut, you know, blah, blah, blah. Because teenagers can be cruel. And I think that hasn't changed. So I was very, very much an outsider when I first came back to school. And I didn't really have any friends. And I felt very alone, which also made me really easy prey. Because one of the first steps in an abusive relationship or in an abuser's, you know, sort of plan of action is to isolate their victim. And I was already pretty isolated. So it just made it easier. Wow. To your point about stigma, by the way, I'm on the board of the Child Mind Institute, which it's all about helping childhood mental illness, you know, up through teenage years. So it would include high school and all that. And there's research and there's treatment, but a huge component is trying to get rid of the stigma of mental illness because that's like a whole added layer of everything. So anyway. Yeah. Well, I mean, I really struggled with, that was something that I wasn't sure if I should include. Because on one hand, I felt like it was really important context to who I was and yeah. how this happened, that I was very lonely, I was very sad, I was depressed, I was very vulnerable. It was part of why I think I was such an easy target. I really believe that. But at the same time, I was afraid that because of the stigma, it'd be used against me. It'd be... Oh. It has been. So Really? Yes, yes. One of the first um, critical reviews of the book... The opening line was Allison Wood had ECT, was a cutter, or had shock therapy, was a cutter, was on 20 different medications, and then this happened. (laughs) And it's like, it set me up to be like, oh, she's this crazy, unreliable narrator. Who's going to listen to this book? I mean, it was honestly like that first review was sort of all of my fears. (laughs) Honestly, like it was everything I was afraid of that would happen. But I really felt like it was important to be honest and to be fully honest and fully vulnerable with my reader. I feel like that makes a good memoir. Like that's sort of part of the point to share. hundred percent. It would have been a different story without that context. And it's not like because you're depressed, you deserve to be sexually abused or like in a, do you know what I mean? Like, (laughs) I mean, like who would think that, you know? And the behaviors come from the underlying stuff, right? It's not like you're, you know, like if you hadn't. Yeah, no, I'm I mean, sorry that that happened to you. That's oh, really you. beside the point and someone yeah. who just missed the plot of your book it's entirely. So and- it's so common for teenagers and for, you know, any age group, but I think it's especially common for teenagers for, because oftentimes that's sort of when it'll first sort of start popping up. And I just think we're so bad at <laughs> supporting teenagers with this. We're just so bad at it. And I think, you know, we've come a long way, but there's still a long way to go. And especially queer teenagers or trans teenagers or you know, women. I mean, it's just, it's tough. And did you think about, like, did you worry about, I know you worried about the beginning, but even just having the whole story out there when you decided to make this a memoir and publish it, like, and then actually as you were writing it and it was coming out, did you have fears about that? for like all the personal stuff. I mean, the whole thing is very personal. The book is really personal. I know, I know, that's what I'm saying. It is a, it is a very personal book. You know, I actually, 
am not and didn't worry that much about that. Really what, what I worried about was the the being honest about the depression part. I worried about how I would be judged for that. But for some reason, I was like, Ugh, this is this is what it is. You know, I, I feel like when, when you write a memoir, you make a contract with the reader that it's like, okay, the whole truth, nothing but the truth, even when it's really ugly and even when it's not flattering, you know? So it's funny. I didn't struggle with, oh, someone's going to read this. People are going to know this about me. I struggled at times with the actual writing because it was going back to something really traumatic. It was going back to something really awful and painful and embarrassing and just like, oh my God, I cannot believe I need to write this scene when this happened. But I, I knew it was important. And early readers, this bothered me to know, to know, and early readers were like, oh my God, the scene where he made you pee in front of him, that's the best scene. And I'm like, oh my, that one, like <laughs> one of the most embarrassing things and like shameful and awful things, like sexual humiliation things that ever happened, that's your favorite scene? Okay, great. <laughs> but to me, that speaks to like how universal in some ways, maybe not that exact situation, but I think for so many women, we've been put in situations where, you know, we had to do things that we didn't want to. Abuse is so common. And also, you know, the sort of power imbalance, abusive relationships, like with the teacher, it's incredibly common. And I hear from readers every single day still, I hear from readers, emails and DMs and things like that of women thanking me for writing the book, which is just so amazing. But then talking about how, you know, I feel understood, I feel seen, I feel acknowledged because this happened to me or something very similar happened to me. And that's honestly the best part about this book and has been the best part about publishing it. And having made it through the trauma of sort of reliving the moment and yeah. going through the actual writing and being a creative writing teacher, I have to get your advice for <laughs> aspiring authors. You must have like you know, hours worth. But what are some of like the things that were most helpful to you and that you think are the most key in, in trying to write a memoir? I was really lucky in that I had an awful lot of primary source documents. I had a stack of journals from my senior year. I had all these photographs of me from that time. I had a whole bunch of letters and notes and hall passes and hotel receipts and all these things that were really helpful in creating the timeline. Because, you know, memory, memory is faulty. Memory can make mistakes, right? An example of something I write about in the book is how I distinctly remembered this moment or this sort of, you know, scene where the teacher in shop, in the shop room, in his study hall, the teacher wanted to trade me my bra size for the size of his penis. And, you know, I, I distinctly remembered that happening. But I thought it had happened like in May. So in May, I would have been 18. We would have been like almost together, quote unquote. So that's still awful. But, you know, well, you know, I don't know. It, it sort of mitigated it a bit in my mind. But then when I was going through my journals and sort of, you know, trying to like track things, I realized that it had happened on November 21st. So that meant I was 17. He had only known me for at most two months. So that also like showed how quickly it escalated from after school help because I was a really good writer to, you know, sexual coercion stuff that today, of course, would have been over 
text message or a Snapchat or whatever, you know, like trying to get me, trying to coerce me to like send him a, you know, topless photo for a dick pic. I mean, it's just, and, and that was a moment when I really snapped through the victim blaming and was like, nope, there is no way, no how that anyone can make an excuse for this. Or, you know, there are no jumping jacks that you can do to say like, this was fine. And this was my fault. Like, nope, nope, nope. And that was really upsetting. Again, to sort of just face that. I think that was one of the hardest parts about the book was just facing, at some points it felt like I was opening up like this onion of trauma. Like the more I looked, the more I reread, the more I sort of like dove into it, the, the worse it was. And it was, it was, writing the book was really hard. Yeah, bad. And also tell me two seconds about Pigeon Pages. Pigeon Pages is a writing community that I founded about four years ago. I founded it because I really wanted to create my own writing community. I wanted it to be full of women and queer people and non-binary folks and trans folks. You know, I didn't want it, basically I didn't want any straight white guys in it. I wanted to sort of create my own community. And we hold monthly readings. We are a literary journal. We publish every week poetry and prose and you know, it's really wonderful. We just, we're opening tomorrow an essay contest with Morgan Jerkins, who's a oh. wonderful author as our judge. So we're so excited. So I just had her on my podcast. She's the best. She's yeah. so wonderful. Yeah. So yeah, she's judging our essay contest. And it opens October 1st and runs through November 15th. You can find yeah. out all sorts of information at Pigeon. Maybe I'll enter. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we're at Pigeon Pages NYC on all the socials and, and you know, that's our website. I couldn't believe how many authors who I've had on my podcast have been like contributors in some way to Pitch and Pages. Oh, yeah. I was like going down and down and down. I was like, oh my gosh, so many. So yeah. I'm like all about it. I'm going to, I followed it and I'm going to, very interested. So, We're a lovely awesome. nest. Yeah. Yes. That's so nice. Also a lot of bird puns. Yes. Because Why we not? believe writing is joy and, you know, let's be a little silly. We can all get a little pretentious, you know? So Pitch and Pages is a place for like, all right, let's knock that down a bit. Let's talk about writing, which is what it's supposed to be, you know? I love it. Allison, thank you. Thank you so much for coming on, for discussing being Lolita, for going through the pain that you had to go through to get it on the page so that other people could benefit. And I hope to continue our conversation offline sometime. Yes. Thank you so much. I'm so honored to be here. I truly appreciate it. Oh, it's my pleasure. All right. Bye. Bye. (laughs) Thanks again to today's sponsor, Sugar Wish. Send a surprise Sugar Wish to somebody you love and check it out yourself, sugarwish.com. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thank you.